Well, we are at the end of this series. This is the last in the installment of the Crossroads series. Um, I, I hope that there has been something that's been helpful in the process as we've been going through this series. I hope that there have been some things that you were able to take from the discussions that we've had about some very specific hot-button topics that in our culture are very difficult to respond to. But what I hope most of all isn't that you have taken, I hope that you have not taken away from this, boy, Pastor Rob sure sounded good, or boy, Stafford sure preached a good sermon. I hope that you've walked away from this and been able to say, now I have a handle on some biblical ways that I can respond to some of these things in our culture. So we've been trying to chart a biblical path through today's difficult issues, and we've talked about several so far, and today we come to the last in this series, and of course, we'll go out with a bang with the last one today. Now, I've titled this, um, Reclaiming the Church's Prophetic Voice, and um, you know, with this message, I want to reframe part of the conversation that's been happening uh, in, in our culture. Maybe, uh, I know that I can't do it for our whole culture, but I can at least begin here in our church. I know that for many of you, this has been a difficult week. For some of you, this may have been a joyous week. For many of you who live here in the state of Virginia, you understand and you realize that uh, we have set some historical firsts this last week. Now, before you tune me out, let me just say that I want to reframe part of the conversation because I know how the conversation has gone for many of you because I've heard it from some of you. Well, I'm moving out of Virginia. After Tuesday, I don't want to be a Virginian. I know how some of you have felt in regard to some of the things that have happened in our nation, that have happened in particular in our state following Tuesday's elections. But I want to take part of this discussion that's been happening nationwide, that's been happening in our culture, and I want to try to transform part of this conversation. I want to help you see this entire conversation in regard to the church and the political arena. I want you to see all of this in a different light. I hope that I'm able to do that with you. And that's why I've titled the sermon. I didn't title this separation of church and state or church and politics or anything like that because I want to give you a different perspective from the very beginning. We have to, we must in the church today, it is absolutely critical that we reclaim territory that the church is supposed to hold, not the political arena. But we've got to reclaim what belongs in the church's arena. We've got to reclaim the church's prophetic voice. Now, I want to read to you a couple of excerpts from two articles that may pique your interest as we start this discussion today. The first is from an article that is written uh, by John MacArthur. It's actually called Christians in Politics. Christians and Politics is the title of this article. And it's an article that's on the website, Grace to You, John MacArthur Ministries, Grace to You. That's their website. And let me just read a couple of phrases, a couple of paragraphs from this article. He says, there was a time in the days of our Puritan forefathers when almost every soul in America acknowledged the Ten Commandments as the cornerstone of ethics and morality. Today, most Americans can't even name three of the ten. There was also a time not so long ago when Americans universally disapproved of homosexuality, adultery, and divorce. They believed sexual promiscuity was absolutely wrong. They regarded obscene language as inappropriate. They saw abortion as unthinkable, and they held public officials to high moral 
and ethical standards. Nowadays, most of the behavioral most of the behavior society once deemed immoral is defended as an inalienable inalienable right. How the times and culture have changed. The strong Christian influence and scriptural standards that shaped Western culture and American society through the end of the 19th century have given way to practical atheism and moral relativism. Moral relativism is you do you, I'll do me. The few vestiges of Christianity in our culture are at best weak and compromising, and to an increasingly pagan society, they are seen as cultic and bizarre. In less than 50 years' times, our nation's political leaders, legislative bodies, and courts have adopted a distinctly anti-Christian attitude and agenda. So what do we do? In this article that John MacArthur writes, he goes on to say, Many think this is a political problem that will not be solved without a political strategy. During the past 25 years, well-meaning Christians have founded a number of evangelical activist organizations and sunk millions of dollars into them in an effort to use the apparatus of politics, lobbying, legislation, demonstration, and boycott to counteract the moral decline of American culture. They pour energy and other resources into efforts to drum up a Christian political movement that will fight back against the prevailing anti-Christian culture. But is that proper? This is a lesson that evangelicals ought to know from church history. We ought to understand, looking at history, that whenever the church is focused on evangelism and preaching the gospel, the church's influence has increased. But when the church has sought power by political, cultural, or military activism, she has damaged or spoiled her testimony for generations. Throughout Protestant history, those segments of the visible church that turn their attention to political issues have also compromised sound doctrine and declined in influence. Today's evangelical political activists seem to be unaware how much their methodology parallels that of liberal Christians, like those misguided idealists Contemporary evangelicals have become enamored with temporary issues at the expense of eternal values. That kind of thinking, listen, fosters the view that government is either our ally, if it supports our agenda, or our enemy, if it's opposed to our agenda. And the political strategy becomes the focus of everything as if the spiritual fortunes of God's people rise or fall depending on who is in office. But the truth is no human government can ultimately do anything to either advance or thwart God's kingdom because the kingdom of God is about the gospel, not politics. There's another article that I would read a portion to you, but actually for time's sake, I'm just going to refer to the article. It's prophetic, not partisan. This is actually an article that comes from a Catholic magazine, America, the Jesuit Review. And in this article, prophetic, not partisan, the author says, this is why we need to be courageous about preaching the gospel in the political arena. He says... It seems that many Catholics, speaking to the Catholic Church, but it's 
applicable for all of us. It seems that many Catholics, both in the pews and in the pulpit, have conflated politics with partisanship, assuming that addressing any issue on which our two major political parties are divided necessarily constitutes an endorsement of one and a rejection of the other. Endorsing one, rejecting the other. In other words, we're having a difficult time speaking on issues because we're afraid of offending those within our group that we identify with or losing some of those who are in our group because we can't speak against things we see in both arenas. He says, this narrow focus produces a regrettable sidestepping of questions of the common good in preaching, which can lead to saccharine feel-good sermons. The gospel demands more of us, both when we speak and when we listen. We must avoid partisanship. We must also avoid letting the fear of partisanship loom so large that it overpowers our ability to speak prophetically on these issues. Now, I share these two articles with you because they kind of frame part of this conversation today. It's time for the church to reclaim its prophetic voice. Now, what do I mean by that? What is a prophetic voice? What is a prophetic voice. Well, a prophetic voice is simply this. When we look in, in, in Scripture, when we look through biblical passages, this is what we find. Prophecy, when we use the term prophecy, when we use that specific word, prophecy is something that we often think about where the person who is speaking is foretelling future events. They're, they're saying, this is what's going to happen generations from now. And we think of things like the book of Revelation. We think about Daniel and his visions of, of generations to come, things that will happen down the road. We think of Isaiah the prophet speaking and saying, this is going to happen to you, Israel, in a generation to come. This is what's going to take place. We think of Jeremiah saying, pretty soon, all of these people are going to be carried away from here. We think of it as foretelling. But prophecy in Scripture most often isn't about foretelling the future. Prophecy in Scripture most often is about forthtelling. Prophecy in Scripture, most of those who are prophets will speak and say this, Thus saith the Lord, you better stop this or in a generation this is going to happen. You better change your ways or this is what's going to take place. We're kind of like Jonah. Even if the message is just a bad sermon where Jonah preaches in the city of Nineveh, hey, yet 40 days, God's going to rain fire down on you and he's going to destroy you and I'm going to sit up on that hilltop right there and I'm going to watch it happen. The prophetic call does speak about what will happen, but it's always spoken in the terms of this. Here's what God says in his word. Here's what God says through his revelation. Here's the, word, the words that God speaks, and because God speaks this way, and because we've diverged from this, because we've left this, unless we repent, unless we turn back, this will take place. So the prophetic voice is this. We've got to proclaim the word of the Lord. That's what prophecy is about. Prophecy is about saying, thus saith the word of the Lord. And the church has to reclaim that. Because quite honestly, in the church, we have lost part of our foundation. Now the end of this series coincides with the beginning of this series. 
crossroads. We've got to chart a biblical path. We can't chart. Let me be careful here. We can't chart a Republican path, and we can't chart a Democratic path, and we can't chart a Libertarian path. We've got to chart a biblical path. Now, if those happen to line up, wonderful. But first and foremost, we've got to proclaim the word of the Lord. Now, I'm going to use three passages of Scripture today. I'm going to use uh, three different uh, passages, three key uh, passages of Scripture as we talk about this. Uh, In Jeremiah chapter 18, if you want to write these down, you can. Now, I'm going to turn to each of these, and I'm going to read from each of these. But in Jeremiah chapter 18... In verses 1 through 12, we're going to talk about the purpose of the prophetic voice. Jeremiah actually speaks in regard to this. Jeremiah says, this is the purpose. This is why the Lord speaks prophetically. Uh, Proverbs 29, 18, we're going to talk about the content of the prophetic voice. You know, what is the prophetic voice? What, What is it that this church, that this church, that all churches, the church everywhere, ought to be proclaiming and saying? So we're going to talk about the content, and we're also going to talk about the response. Well, how are we supposed to respond? What are we supposed to do with this? 2 Chronicles 7, 14. These three passages, you can write them down. But we're going to begin in Jeremiah chapter 18, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 12. So let me read it to you. If you'd like to turn there, you can. Jeremiah chapter 18, and we'll read verses 1 through 12. And it says, starting at verse 1, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord said, Rise, go down to the potter, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Jeremiah said, I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made was of clay, and it was marred in the hand. There was a flaw. It was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again. He folded it again. He rolled it into itself. He made it again into another vessel as seemed good to the potter to make. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord. Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so you are. In my hand, O house of Israel. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down and destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, If it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now, everyone, from his evil way and make your ways and your doings Good. And they said, That is hopeless. We will walk according to our own plans, and we will, everyone, obey the dictates of our own evil hearts. I want to talk to you first of all today 
about the purpose of the prophetic voice. The church has to reclaim its prophetic voice. The church must reclaim its prophetic voice. I want to talk to you, first of all, about the purpose. Here in Jeremiah chapter 18, as the Lord's speaking to Jeremiah, he is speaking to a prophet, through a prophet, to the nation to explain what the prophet is supposed to do. And he sends Jeremiah down to the house of the potter. And as Jeremiah goes into the house of potter and he watches what's happening there, the potter takes this lump of clay, which is very wet and very moldable. And there on this wheel where the potter spins by taking his foot and pushing, and as he pushes and spins the wheel around at a constant speed, the potter is able to take his thumbs and stick it into the clay and mold and fashion and shape this bowl, this jar, this whatever it will be, into the design that he desires. And as Jeremiah watches and sees that the potter takes that clay and refolds it into a new lump because he wasn't satisfied with what it was, and then starts to reshape and refashion that pot again, the Lord speaks and says, Jeremiah, That is what I do. That is what I'm using you for. That is what I want to do with every nation on the face of the earth. And every nation had better listen. Because first and foremost, people need to understand that I, the Lord, can do with any nation, anywhere, whatever I want. The nations are at the Lord's disposal. He can do with them as he pleases. That's what he says to Jeremiah here in verse 6. He says, every nation of this earth, every single one is at my disposal. O house of Israel, God's chosen nation, among all the nations of the earth at that day, they're the ones that the Lord has singled out and said, I'll pour my blessing on you. You're going to be the one through whom this message of hope and salvation will be spread around the earth. And Israel failed in that, and he says... Can I not do with you as this potter? You don't have any inalienable rights. You don't have the right to tell me what I can and can't do with you, Israel. Look, this clay, as this clay is in the potter's hand, so you're in my hand, and I can do with you whatever I want. Now, this is critically important. It is absolutely critically important for this discussion. Because what we have to understand as Christians, what we have to understand as American Christians, what we have to understand as believers here in the United States of America, is that I have a citizenship, but my first citizenship is not as an American. At least it shouldn't be. My primary citizenship needs to be a citizenship in a kingdom that is greater than a 200-year-old nation. My citizenship as a follower of Christ is in the kingdom of God, first and foremost. I happen to be a Christian in the kingdom of God and have that citizenship who was born into a nation that is free. But what about the rest of the planet that doesn't have the same freedom that we do? They are still Christians 
citizens in the kingdom of God, but they don't have the same American freedoms that we do. I'm afraid that in the church today, we have started to wed these two together. We have started to bring these together and knit them together so tightly that we have forgotten that first and foremost, I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. And that has to be my absolute highest priority above everything else. You know, it's interesting that some of those writers who speak about the book of Revelation, that when they talk about end times, many of those writers who speak about the book of Revelation, they're kind of nebulous. They they don't have a really good feel about who America is in the book of Revelation as it's talking about the end times. Oh, they can point to and say, oh, well, this nation really sounds like Iraq or Iran. This nation sounds, it's obviously Israel, this nation, that. But, you know, it's kind of interesting that many of those conservative biblical writers talking about the book of Revelation, they can't come to a consensus that, hey, this description describes America. You know why that is? Because it's very possible that America won't be here then. It's very possible that America will not survive your generation, my generation, the 10 generations that follow us. It's possible America might not be here, but the kingdom of God will be, and we better get this priority right. I am first and foremost a citizen of the kingdom of God, and secondly, I am a citizen of the United States of America. The Lord can do whatever he wants to with any nation, anywhere, at any time. Now, hear from this passage in Jeremiah chapter 18, this is what he also says. He says, when I speak, when I give a message, I'm doing it with a purpose. I'm not speaking just to hear my voice. I'm not speaking just to lay a foundation that people can say, oh, yeah, that's the Bible, and we'll stand on that, and then go and make my own decisions about what I'm going to do. God says, I speak With a direct purpose. What's the purpose of the Lord's message? What is the purpose of why God gave us this gospel? Verse 7 says, The instant I speak concerning a nation, a kingdom. And if I speak and say, I'm going to tear this nation down. I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to pluck it up. Because it's a nation that is straight from my word, straight from my will. Verse 8, If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. If I speak concerning a nation and say, I'm going to build it up, I'm going to plant it. But that nation does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I said I would benefit it. The Lord speaks with purpose. He says, when I speak, there are times that I'm going to speak critically. And there are times that I'm going to speak positively. There are times that I'm going to encourage and and I'm 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 going to give hope. I'm going to give I'm going to give peace. I'm going to speak joy. I'm going to speak words and and a message that just swells the heart. 
says, but there are going to be times that I'm going to speak because of sin, because of mistakes, because of failures, because of a heart that is straight for me. I'm going to speak, and it's not going to be very fun. It's not going to be very pleasant. It's not going to be very gentle. I'm going to speak, and I expect my words to be heard because I see the greater picture. I have to speak in regard to what this nation is doing. I have to speak in regard to what this person is doing. I have to speak in regard to this issue, and I can't ignore that because I know what happens if they don't turn. The Lord speaks with purpose. And the church has to speak with purpose too. We can't become so enamored, so invested in the process that we lose the objectivity which calls sin, sin, whether they've got a D by their name or an R by their name. We've got to speak with purpose just like the Lord speaks with purpose. The Lord says, I'll speak words of hope, but I'm also going to speak words of condemnation when there's sin present in hopes that they'll turn. One last thing out of this passage, understanding the church's prophetic voice and its purpose. The Lord says, my continuing work within a nation is dependent upon its response to the prophetic word. Me continuing to work there, me continuing to pour my blessing out, is dependent upon the response to the prophetic word. Verse 11, Now therefore speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm fashioning a disaster, devising a plan against you. Return now, everyone, from his evil way. Make your ways and your doings good. They said, That's hopeless. We will walk according to our own plans, and we will, everyone, obey the dictates of his heart. Now, when you read this phrase, when you read this statement, here's what the temptation may be. The temptation may be to say, we are speaking, and they're not listening. We are speaking, and they're just not hearing. We are condemning this, and they're just not responding. They're not repenting. They're not turning. But keep in mind that verse 11 begins with this. The Lord says to Jeremiah, you, Jeremiah, speak Go speak the message. The Lord says it this way to Ezekiel, the prophet. He says, Ezekiel, I've set you up as a watchman for my people. You're like the watchman on the wall, the wall of the city of Jerusalem. And that watchman is looking out, seeing where danger may be coming against the city. And if you, as a good watchman watching for the sin or the, the evil that may be coming against the city, if you as a watchman, when you spot something that is coming against my city, and you turn and warn people and say, there's danger. If they don't listen, that's on them. But if you, as the watchman, see the danger and don't shout, there's danger, that's on you. The Lord's continuing work within a nation is dependent upon its response to the prophetic word. Not just those who are responding because they're unbelievers, but those who are responding because they are believers. 
We have a responsibility to speak the word. We have a responsibility to proclaim truth. We have a responsibility to speak in the public arena on issues, on things that we see from a biblical perspective, whether they're of the party and the group that we agree with or not. We've got to understand the purpose of the church's prophetic voice, but we also have to understand the content of the church's prophetic voice. Proverbs 29, 18 speaks to this. You can turn there if you want. Let me quote it to you the way that most people remember this verse. Where there is no vision, the people perish. That's the way that we remember this verse most often. That's from the King James Version. Where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Now, that's the King James Version, that word vision. It's used quite a bit. There are books that are written about vision. I've got two books on my shelves in the office. And uh, one of the books has a real nifty title. It says, where there is no vision, the people, P-A-R-I-S-H, People perish. They become a church. Where there is no vision, the people become a church. A catchy little title caught my eye. So I bought the book, read through the book. Um, Usually when we think of this term vision, what we think of is a a, a dream. Uh, There's there's a plan. There's something in place. And and we've got got an idea. We've We've got something that we're aiming for. Where there is no vision, where there's no plan, where there's no dream, the people perish. The problem is that's really not what this verse says. Because you see the word vision is from the Hebrew word chazon. And it doesn't mean what most of us think that it means. We think of vision as something happening in the future, some grand design, some great plan. You know, he's a visionary. He's got an idea of what he's aiming for in the future, and he goes after it and designs a plan for it. She does this. She's a visionary leader and and entrepreneur, and she had an idea about what this business could be like before anybody ever even conceived of it. That's kind of what we think of with the term visionary. The problem is that's really not what this word means. In fact, if you read along with me in the New King James Version, which I think most of you, many of you do, because I've been reading out of that for 10 years now, um, in the New King James, they actually translate this phrase a little differently. In the New King James, in Proverbs 29:18, also in the NIV, in the Holman Christian Standard Bible, they translate this word vision differently. Here's what they say in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. It says, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. But happy is he who keeps the law. And it actually makes a lot more sense, that whole phrase, when we read the first part that way. Where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. But happy is the one who keeps the revelation, keeps the law. Where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. Actually, I kind of like the English Standard Version translation of this word because it kind of puts it in, I think, a little more appropriate uh, terms for this particular lesson. It says, where there is no prophetic vision, where there is no prophetic revelation, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. 
In other words, what needs to be the content of the church's prophetic voice? What needs to be the content of the message that we proclaim? What needs to be the content of what we're sharing? What needs to be the content of what we are putting out day after day, week after week? We need to be putting out the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the good news of of the gospel of Jesus Christ is predicated upon this. I am a sinner. If we don't speak about sin and if we don't proclaim what sin is, if we don't speak to an issue and say, this is sin, this is an offense, uh, uh, an affront against God. If a person never comes to the place where they acknowledge and they admit that they are a sinner in need of grace, is that person saved? Maybe that's part of the reason why in America today, in the church today, we have 1,800 members on the roll of a church, and we have 400 who attend. Maybe that's why in America there are 14 million Southern Baptists, but on any given Sunday there are 3 million that are in a church church worshiping. Maybe it's because we stopped calling sin, sin. We've stopped putting in front of people and saying, yes, that is a sin. Yes, that leads to death. Yes, that will cause you to spend eternal separation from God in hell in a place that Jesus Christ came to the cross and died and shed his blood so that you might be redeemed from. See, that term vision is revelation, where there's no Revelation, where there's no message from the Lord, where there is no proclamation of truth. The people die. And with this message, they're not just dying physically, they are dying spiritually, eternally, facing a death that lasts forever. got to understand the content that we're called to share. We've got to call sin, sin. Whether it's on this side of the aisle or that side of the aisle, it doesn't matter. The church needs to keep its prophetic voice, and we can't jump into bed with one or the other and say that we're on this side, we're on that side, because there's sin on both sides. And it's time for the church to start proclaiming the prophetic word of God. So what is the response supposed to look like? What, what is it that we're supposed to what is it that we're supposed to be responding to? Now I could have easily chosen a number of different passages. I, I just decided to single in on one, Second Chronicles 7:14. It's this verse that the Lord gave to Solomon when the nation of Israel, when the temple was dedicated, the nation of Israel was gathering around. In verse 14, the Lord said, to Solomon, if my people who are called by my name, if they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sin, or heal their land. What's the response to the prophetic voice? Well, let me just briefly outline these four things that are there. First of all, in the context of this passage, 
The Lord is speaking about generations that will come. He's speaking to Solomon, and he's saying that in generations to come, your nation's going to face a hard time. In generations to come, your nation is going to be fractured, and they are going to be fractious. They're going to be sinful and rebellious. And so I'm telling you, generations in advance, here's the formula. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Now I get it for some of you, this last week was a difficult week. Because we were hoping to bring about a significant change in the state of Virginia to, to, to keep a, a, a strong majority, moral, what we thought might be a, a, a Bible-leading group of politicians in place. And it didn't happen. I mean, we're in a state where our governor has said that it's okay for children to be born and to let them die after birth. And he's gone on record saying that. That's sad. But this is why we've got to reframe part of the conversation. Because if we think that Virginia is lost because of Tuesday's election, we've missed the point. The Lord's already given the formula. He didn't say, if my congressional leaders all fall in line with my word, if my governors and congressmen and senators all become followers of me, if my president, if my vice president, if my Supreme Court justices will all just stand on my word, then I will hear from heaven and I will Forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. That is not what God said. He said in his word, if the church, if those who believe in me, if those who trust in my name, if my people will humble themselves. If we stop pointing the finger at everybody else and start looking at where our fingers are pointing and start realizing that maybe in this process I've got some culpability, that maybe there's some sin in my life, that maybe I haven't been proclaiming the gospel message the way that I should, that this isn't necessarily a political issue, this is a spiritual issue which is only going to be changed by the word of God being shared with those who come to faith in God, come to faith in Jesus Christ. If I humble myself and recognize my role in this, that I need to be more ready to share the gospel, that I need to be more ready to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, transforming the hearts and lives of people around me. And that when lives are transformed by the gospel, then we don't have to worry about an election. We don't have to worry about what happens because the hearts have already been changed. They aren't going to be changed by an election. They're going to be changed by the good news of Jesus Christ. And when we in the church humble ourselves and recognize that I have a part in this process, that maybe I haven't been doing what I should do. That's where healing begins. If my people humble themselves, if my people pray,
pour out your heart to me. If my people pray and speak with me, if my people pray and share my name, if my people pray, pray for their governors, pray for their leaders, pray for their presidents, pray for their senators, pray for their congressmen, pray for their lost neighbors, pray for their lost co-workers, pray for their lost family members, pray for those who've strayed away from my word, pray for those who are in the church but aren't in it now, pray for those, if my people pray, if they humble themselves and they pray and they seek my face, they seek me above everything else, they seek my will and my direction, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek me. What is the answer for America? Jesus Christ. The cornerstone on which everything else is built. If my people seek my face and they turn from their mistakes and their sin, then I'll hear from heaven. Then I'll forgive their sin. Then I'll hear their It's time for the church to reclaim its prophetic voice. It's time for the church to start focusing on eternal things, not just temporary things. It's time for the church to look inside humble ourselves, pray, seek his face, and turn from our mistakes if we really want to see our land healed. Let's pray. Lord, today, I ask that you would help us to see Lord, you've given us your word. You have shared a revelation. You have given your message. You have shared the vision from your word. And you say that the one who responds to your word, the one who keeps your laws, oh, happy is he, happy is she. They will find joy and peace. Part of that law that you have given us clearly states that we are to share this law with others, that we are to share this message with others. And yes, Lord, we understand that we need to speak on issues which we've been talking about for weeks now. We need to speak on issues about biblical marriage, biblical sexuality. We need to speak on issues with regard to racism. We 
regard to caring for the sojourner, refugees, immigrants. But ultimately, Lord, what we've got to remember, what we have to keep in mind is that when we stand on your word, your word already gives the answer to these. And that when we speak, we need to be speaking the redemptive gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing that it won't be a political party that changes the heart of America. It will be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that changes the heart of America. And so, Lord, help us to lift high the right standard, the right banner. Us to lift you high, Jesus, knowing your promise and your word that when you are lifted up, when you're lifted up on the cross, but when you're also lifted up by your people in the church, those who believe in your name, that when we seek your face, when we exalt you, you will draw men, women, boys, and girls to you. Help us to reclaim our prophetic voice starting today. In Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.